What's happening, everybody? And welcome to American West History and Lore. I am your host, Paul Workman. And you know what? I hope everything is going great for you fine folks. I have a little bit of a different show for y'all today. Just a little, though. I like to mix things up every now and again. I've mentioned on the show before that uh, one of my all-time favorite places to visit is Disneyland. And frankly, if there's a way for me to steer the conversation towards the topic of Disneyland, I'll do it. It's strange, though, because honestly, I never really watched too many Disney shows growing up and never went to Disneyland as a child. It wasn't until my wife finally convinced me to go and we took our our two boys. And from then on, I was hooked. I mean, obsessed. Uh, But but what was it about Disneyland that hooked me? Uh, I've thought about that a lot over the years. And yes, the rides and the food are definitely one thing that hooked me. but, But equally, it was the life of Walt Disney and his passion for everything he did that that hooked me ongoing as well and studying about Walt Disney and uh, specifically the history of Disneyland. I think most people look at Walt Disney and see one thing, and that's an animator, which is funny because if you look at his life, and and I believe he even said it himself back in the day, uh, he wasn't the best artist in the world, but he was a creative genius. Uh, He was an amazing storyteller and could get his point across in ways that others couldn't. Okay, I know what you're asking yourself. What does Walt Disney and Disneyland have to do with the history of the American West? Well, for starters, Disneyland is located on the West Coast of the United States. Secondly, even though it's more modern, Walt and his history are a big part of the American West and history and lore. Third, Walt had a big love for American Western history. This is evident from books on the, that Disney produced, uh, themes in his cartoons and films, TV shows such as Davy Crockett, documentaries that he produced, and yes, themed lands within Disneyland itself, particularly Frontierland. Now, in 1958, Walt opened a new attraction at his park called the Grand Canyon Diorama. This was an attraction designed to show off the beauty of the American Southwest and was actually inspired by his 1958 Oscar-winning documentary, Grand Canyon. The ride was designed to take you along the rim of the Grand Canyon and includes many different sites, including ancient cliff dwellings, a variety of desert wildlife such as cougar, eagles, skunks, mule deer, and snakes, and a sunrise and storm scenario. And here's the thing about Walt. He went all out when it came to the dedicatory ceremonies for his new attractions. Take It's a Small World, for instance. That attraction is a boat ride that was created with the intention to show that we're all a part of this small world and and that we all have more in common than not, and it represents all cultures from all over the world. For the dedicatory ceremony, Walt had water flown in from all different bodies of water from the world and poured each of them into the ride's waterway. Uh, He definitely didn't skimp for the, uh, the Grand Canyon diorama dedicatory ceremony either. He brought in a Disneyland band, Disneyland Park officials, his longtime friend Fred Gurley, who was the chairman of the Santa Fe Railroad at the time, and this is appropriate because you ride a train for the attraction, but the most special part was that Walt brought in Native Americans in authentic Native American dress, and they came and dedicated the attraction. A few members from the Hopi tribe stood close as 96-year-old Chief Navan Ganua performed a blessing on the attraction. I really hope I said his name right. So there you have it. It's, it's a little bit more modern history of the American West, but 
it was really just a fun piece of trivia that you can go all tell your friends now. But while sticking to the topic of the Grand Canyon, let's get into the real meat and potatoes of this uh, episode. I thought it would be fun to talk about some of the lore behind the Great National Park, particularly the haunted lore of the Grand Canyon. So let's go ahead and get into it. Alright, so the Grand Canyon National Park is one of America's most cherished geological and historical areas to visit. Uh, Located in the northwestern portion of Arizona, the park has had quite the journey to become a protected area of interest. In 1893, the canyon was put under federal protection as a forest reserve, and in 1908, President Theodore Roosevelt deemed it a national monument. It wasn't until 1919, though, that President Woodrow Wilson upgraded the status of the Grand Canyon to a national park. Now, the Grand Canyon has some of the most spectacular views as far as the eye can see, and is one of the most visited tourist attractions in the world, gathering millions of visitors from all over the world each year. Though the 270-mile-long and 18-mile-wide canyon took millions of years to be carved out, it has a long history of inhabitants with artifacts dating back some 12,000 years ago, which would categorize them in the Paleo-Indian period. Archaeological remains have been found in the canyon from many cultural groups, such as the archaic basket maker, the Zuni, the Hopi, the Navajo, and the Euro-American. Now, having given just a smidgen of background on the Grand Canyon, what history lesson wouldn't be made better by sprinkling a little bit of the paranormal on top of it? There are many areas within the canyon that are said to be inhabited still, not just by earthly beings, but perhaps beings that have long since left this realm and have elevated to a higher plane, if you will. Here are a few stories that, depending on your interest, may either advance your desire to visit the Grand Canyon National Park or convince you to bag your journey altogether, though I hope it is the former. Maricopa Point Maricopa Point is an overlook that looks over some amazing vistas. Not only that, it looks out over what used to be an actual working mine known as the Orphan Lode Mine, which was claimed in 1891 by Dan Hogan to mine copper. However, Hogan switched to mining uranium in the 1950s. The National Park Service acquired this land in 1987 and really put the time and effort into its environmental restoration in 2008, so that now we may peer down from the Maricopa Point and view its semi-restored beauty. Maricopa Point, however, was once a dangerous overlook with no railing to even somewhat prevent you from looking just a little bit too far over the edge. In the 1930s, a man who was in the Civilian Conservation Corps fell over the edge of the point while installing the safety railing itself. It is said that on occasion, usually at sundown, a black misty figure can be seen near the railing. It is also noted that the figure has a shovel and and loud scraping sounds, almost like a shovel scraping the dirt, can be heard. The Wailing Woman of the Grand Canyon The transept trail within the Grand Canyon is a three-mile-long nature trail which follows the canyon rim to the North Rim Campground. Though it is a trail filled with much beauty, it also has some sad history associated with it. The story goes that in the 1920s, a family was staying at a nearby lodge. The husband and son were out hiking on the transept trail when the weather turned bad. The two hikers lost their footing and fell to their tragic, inevitable deaths. The wife was naturally distraught about the loss of her husband and son 
and worked tirelessly to find them. At what point she gave up hope, well, no one can be certain of that. But several days later, she hanged herself in the lodge so that she may be with her family again in the afterlife. Several people who have hiked the trail and stayed at the nearby campground can attest to the validity that a woman's soul has yet to give up searching for the bodies of her husband and son. It's said that on stormy nights along the Grand Canyon North Rim, her cries can be heard, wailing and crying throughout the canyon, distressed by the fact that she cannot find her missing family members. Tourists have described seeing a woman in a white dress with blue flowers floating along the transept trail between the lodge and the campground, searching endlessly and tirelessly for her husband and son. El Tovar Hotel The El Tovar Hotel opened its doors in 1905. It was open specifically for those who came to visit the Grand Canyon. It even was graced by the one and only National Park man himself, President Theodore Roosevelt, once in 1906 and again in 1913. The El Tovar is situated just off the south rim of the canyon, and the views that one sees when they arrive are spectacular. But, much like any old hotel, it must be haunted, right? Of course. The El Tovar, although a pretty fancy place to dine and sleep, is not exempt from being haunted. Over the years since its existence, employees and guests have witnessed strange occurrences. They have claimed to have seen a phantom figure wandering up and down the front stairs of the building and across the property of the El Tovar before vanishing. A well-known specter who some claim inhabits the third floor is that of Fred Harvey, an entrepreneur from London who seized an opportunity to offer better dining facilities along the Santa Fe Railroad line. He also saw the future of the Grand Canyon as a high-traffic tourism area and convinced the Santa Fe Railroad to run some tracks to the area. Though Harvey died in 1901 and never lived to see the opening of the El Tovar, it is thought that he indeed is the ghostly figure on the third floor, welcoming folks to some sort of holiday celebration. Perhaps one of the spookiest stories from the El Tovar comes from a couple who came to visit the area from Los Angeles. They say they walked past the television in their room only to see the face of an old man with a gray beard staring right back at them. The Grand Canyon Caverns Though not located directly within the park itself, the Grand Canyon Caverns are a notable mention as they are within close proximity of it. Its formation began around 345 million years ago, but jumping forward just a little bit, we welcome ourselves to the year 1927, when a man by the name of Walter Peck was on his way to a rousing game of poker, but rather slipped and fell into a random hole in the ground. Obviously curious now, Peck continued on to his poker game, told his pals about it, and the next morning gathered some helpers along with ropes and lanterns, and a local cowboy descended around 150 feet into the funnel-shaped hole. The cowboy gathered some shiny rock samples, and upon his return to the surface, showed them to Peck, along with telling him that around the 50-foot mark he saw a ledge, and on that ledge lay the remnants of two human skeletons, along with a horse saddle. The story broke, and word got around about the hole and the two skeletons. However, Peck played the remains off as cavemen, with no mention of a saddle being found. Peck planned to mine the caverns after he purchased the property. However, when assay reports came back, the only thing they found was rust. That's when he decided to use it as a tourist attraction and charge for people to come and see where two cavemen, quote-unquote, had been discovered. 
The real story eventually came to light about who the two skeletal remains belonged to. Around the winter of 1917 and 1918, a group of Hualapai Indians were out cutting firewood when two brothers from the tribe were struck with the flu and perished. Being winter, the ground was too hard to dig any graves, and rather than taking the two men back to their tribe and risk spreading the sickness, they remember they saw a hole up on the hill and proceeded to take the men back up there to give them somewhat of a proper burial. Now, for many years, reports of ghostly sightings and disembodied voices, as well as inexplicable noises, have been seen and heard within the caverns, and of course, this begs the question as to who or what is responsible for the hauntings. Some of the employees of the cavern can attest to the strange happenings there. Tour guides and visitors both claim to see strange figures. Strange shadows can occasionally be seen dancing on the rock walls, and perhaps the spookiest of all, disembodied chanting. The haunting that occurs most often, however, is that of a ghostly vision of a man standing in the elevator that leads to the bottom of the caverns. Witnesses have seen him within the elevator at the top and the bottom of the shaft. Many of the employees believe this to be the spirit of Walter Peck himself. There are reports of people seeing the ghostly tour guide. The guide died just outside the caverns and it seems that, just as in life, he loves doing his job in death. Because the caverns were used as a winter burial site for the Hualapai Indians, it is said that if one listens carefully within the caverns, the whispering sounds of the Native Americans can be heard. So there you guys have it, the Haunted Grand Canyon. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this show, guys. I really hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I would love it if you guys could go on iTunes and Stitcher, leave me a good rating and review if you if you feel like I'm doing a good job and if you like the content, feel free to shoot me an email with show suggestions or questions or just to drop a line and say, hey, you can reach me at thepkworkman at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-P-K-W-O-R-K-M-A-N at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll catch you on the next show.